Hi, I'm your host, Aaron, and welcome to the First Generations Podcast, the show where we dive into the personal experience and knowledge of individuals that pave their path to success on their own terms. From entrepreneurs, professionals, and beyond, we will learn what it takes to walk through their journey and what it means to be first generation. Coming up in this episode... And then leveraging people, and this is the one that actually had the biggest impact on me, because when he first said it, I actually took it as a negative, like leveraging people, that, that feels wrong. Yeah. And he goes, no, 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 no. What I mean by that is bringing talented people in so that you don't have to build something by yourself, right? When you go out to do something, you know what you're good at, you know what you're bad at. I want you to think of the vision, and then I want you to think of all the people you need to bring around you to create that vision. So it's us going there, not you. Welcome to the First Generations Podcast. Today's guest is the current president and managing principal of Commune Capital, a private equity real estate investment firm. A serial entrepreneur at heart, he first found success with nearly two decades of professional skateboarding. Now, throughout his career, he held lucrative sponsorship contracts with DC Shoe Co., GoPro Cameras, and Alien Workshop. And over his tenure, he had over 100 signature skateboard decks, seven pro model shoes, and was one of the most recognizable pro skateboarders on the planet. Now, not one to rest on his laurels, early in his career, our guest was already thinking about life after skateboarding. What's Next was co-founding and the eventual launch of St. Archer's Brewing Company. This San Diego-based craft beer company and its first-of-its-kind business model led to quick success and multi-million dollar purchase by Miller Coors Company in 2015. Since then, he has been busy co-founding Sovereign Skateboards, Avdi Intelligence, which is an entrepreneur education platform and podcast, and most importantly, Commune Capital. Now, armed with only a high school education, but more than a lifetime of real-world experience, our guest is committed to assisting the next generation to define the new American dream. Born and raised in Southern California, he currently resides in Thousand Oaks with his wife and his wonderful kids. Now, I am proud and honored to present you our guest for today, Mikey Taylor. Hi, Mikey. How are you doing? Good, man. Thanks for having me. Doing well. That, that's good to hear, and I'm honored to have you on the show. And, you know, to first start things off, I want to ask you, like, during our current times, what is one thing you're most grateful for at this moment? Oh, uh, current times? Yes, current times. <laughs> for us, I think the biggest blessing that kind of happened in this moment was reprioritizing kind of what was important to us. Okay. And... You know, something as little as eating with our family for dinner in front of each other every night, dude, we kind of lost that one. And kind of with this like little, whatever you want to call it moment, uh, we started doing that again and realized how valuable it is to actually like sit there and spend time eating with your family. Oh yeah. Uh, that was a big one for us. That, that one was one I'm like really thankful for happened. So we're still like maintaining that and just, you know, putting that as a priority. Oh, no, that's good. I would assume going forward, too, let's, as, as things get back to normal, that's still going to be a priority as well. Yeah, that's the hard part, though, right? We get busy <laughs> and, and, and things that are important. Sometimes, you know, we stop putting the attention they deserve. And then before you know it, they're not, we're not doing it anymore. It's kind yeah. of the challenge of being busy. Like when we started this interview, we talked about liking being busy, but busy can be hard as well, man. Oh, most definitely. Busy can be a distraction, you know? <laughs> oh, yeah. As of the current times, then, like, what are some exciting projects that you have ongoing right now as, as we're currently transitioning outside of the pandemic? Like, did you find that this moment also allowed you to see more opportunities or allowed you to give you a little bit more time to work on other things? Like you mentioned, you know, being as something simple as being on, at the dinner table with your kids and family. Yeah, that's a good question. So one, our business was kind of on the side of being, uh, we were on the good side of COVID, I guess you could say it. Like the, the impact that COVID made brought opportunity to us as a business. And kind of what our business is now, we primarily focus on repurposing assets. Okay. So we'll buy kind of a big, a dead vacant big box retail, like a Kmart or a Walmart. And then we convert that into storage. And then we've also been going after malls that are basically becoming distressed or become vacant and then repurposing them into multifamily. So COVID kind of ramped up those two parts where we started seeing a lot of opportunity because of it. So 
it, it's been we've been in like dude growth mode it's been crazy on our end as far as the business goes so <laughs> it, it's been a positive impact for us that's good to hear and obviously you had to pivot right to, especially to go into growth mode was was that easy for yourself and like the business to do so or did it take some time for you guys to recognize that hey you know what we should actually be pivoting we need to change our business model right now yeah it's a good question it, growing is hard actually growing yeah. is not easy i would way rather prefer the problem of growing than yeah. the opposite of having to you know uh bring everything down but you no know, for us like right when it happened we weren't sure what the impact was going to be and in you know, when COVID hit, our first focus was our current portfolio. Yes. How is this going to impact what we own right now? And so in the beginning, it was just, a, you know, let's make sure we're sitting on enough cash reserves. Let's pr- prepare for the worst. Mm-hmm. Uh, the impact wasn't what we were seeing that it could have been. And then very quickly, we started looking, okay, then there, this is going to provide opportunity. And it took us probably... I would say five or six months until we really were able to go after it. Yeah. And in that time, yeah, we did some restructuring. We, the difference though was we already had these platforms built. We were already going after the dead malls and dead retail. Mm -hmm. So we didn't really have to pivot on our strategy. The only thing that we had to change was with our business in, in real estate, when it's really easy to find deals, it's typically hard to raise money. And then when it's easy to raise money, it's typically hard to find deals, right? Because when times are good, mm-hmm. everything is trading at a premium. That means you're not going to get a deal. And that just happens to be where everybody wants to just throw money into things. And yeah. then, you know, when the downturn happens, that's where opportunity comes. But that, that's when everybody goes into defense mode and puts their cash in their pocket. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was different about this moment is we had a lot of deal flow and we had the potential to raise a lot of money at the same time. That was what was unique to us. So we had to just gear up for bringing on more dollars at a faster pace than we have in the past. Wow. That's almost like a blessing. (laughs) It was a good problem to have. Definitely a good problem to have. (laughs) Yeah. I find you, you're, you're super fascinating. Like again, you, you were like a pro skateboarder going on early life and now you've transitioned to having your own real estate company and you have a lot of projects on the side, especially with, you know, enhancing financial literacy to the people and so on. So I kind of wanted to start off with, you know, your early life, especially with maybe your skating and career and family life too. But I guess to start off, do you still find yourself or do you find the time right now for yourself to pick up a skateboard and, you know, just to, take an hour or two to go to the parks and <laughs> do no. your thing. No, <laughs> no, no skate. I skating, uh, you know, I, I went from skating four to six hours a day, every single day for about 25 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, now I might skate once a month, maybe it's, oh, it's wow. so limited now. Yeah. And something that's kind of starting to change though, is my daughter is just now getting into skateboarding. Yes. And so she's asking me so that at least makes it a little bit easier where when I'm spending time with, you know, the family, if she goes, let's go skate. Oh, okay, here we go. Now I can set time aside to hang out with her and skate. But right now with kind of the life cycle I'm in, I don't get that much time to just go do something for like just the pure hobby aspect of it. That's understandable. So skating, yeah, skating at the moment is kind of on the back burner. It's just yeah. a time, it's a time thing right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's funny you said that too, because I actually, I had a cousin, I have a cousin, not had, I have a cousin that he used to be really big in skateboarding and he's in his mid thirties now. And recently he picked up a board again and it's just for him, it just, it was like very nostalgic of, you know, of the back times back then when he would pick it up and he would tell me all about it. I'm like, Oh man, that's, that must be such a good feeling. Right. Especially to have that skill to retain, still be able to skate. Right. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And I, I think that's going to happen for me too. I think there's going to be a point where like, you know, have a little <laughs> bit more time, start picking up the board, really start enjoying it again. Yeah. You know, almost like how I used to when I was a kid, like before it became a career mm-hmm. and just like doing it for the love of it. Yeah. But it's just not there right now. We all have our phases, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. During your journey of becoming a professional skateboarder, what was one trick that you found that was most difficult for yourself to pick up and learn? Because, you know, there are lots of tricks that have difficulty levels, but I personally found that I, I picked up a skateboard before too, but like for the life of me, I could, I, I couldn't, like it took, I took like six months to learn how to ollie, which is not, it was just pretty long, right? But what was that trick for you? <laughs> uh, for me, it was a hard flip. 
a hard flip. A hard flip was so hard for me to learn. Uh, it, actually, I, I just accepted that I was never going to learn it. I, I was a pro skateboarder for, gosh, probably nine years. Still couldn't do hard flip. Never yeah. landed one. And I finally got to a point where like some kid asked me to play skate, right? Yes. Some random kid at the park. Yeah. He could barely skateboard, right? And I was like, oh, I'll just play him skate. Like, it'd be funny. He could barely skateboard. He got me a letter on a hard flip. And it was one of those moments <laughs> where I was like, you know what? If, if this guy who like can't do anything can hard flip, I need to make myself a hard flip. And, uh, dude, it took me almost four years of being a pro skateboarder to learn yeah. how to hard flip. That was one of those things that like, that was a brutal grind. Probably gratifying though once you nailed it down, I would presume. <laughs> once I got it, it was the, the, the part that was the most gratifying is once I filmed one for a video part yeah. that was worthy to be in the video. That, that was like, that was a big highlight for me. That's awesome to hear, man. And I want to thank you for sharing that. Now, another question I guess I don't know you normally get is I found that for, especially with my cousin and I, like injury was very common. So what was the most painful injury you've ever experienced from skateboarding? Oh, it's a good question, man. There's been a lot of them. Or the one that comes to your mind. The most painful one was probably the last one. And it didn't happen from a fall. That's what was so weird about it. It was just like kind of wear and tear. But I tore a ligament in my leg. And it was a partial tear. So half the ligament tore. Yeah. And half of it was still connected to the bone. Yes. And I had a fracture in the bone. So every time I pull up my leg, I would feel the fracture in the ligament and I would feel the bone being pulled from the other bone. And oh. I skated like that for a year. So that was like by far the worst pain I've ever, I have ever dealt with because I got to the point where skating was miserable. Like I couldn't even enjoy it because <laughs> it hurt so bad to do it. Yeah. You know, and then I ended up having to have surgery on it and fix it. But that was, uh, that was one of those ones that that sucked. That sounds really terrible too. I've also done very something very similar, but with my yeah, with my ankle, but again, it's partial tear too. And for myself, I find that it's never the same. Even after you're recovered, quote unquote recovered, like it still doesn't feel the same, especially with from a mobility aspect. <laughs> yeah, ankles for sure. Ankles are one of those ones that like if you hurt it bad enough, yeah, you just you lose mo you lose motion. Yeah. So this was one question that one of my buddies had, you know, wanted to ask you yourself and I guess it's very general. And his question is, how did you get so good at what you did? Did you believe that it was like a combination of, let's say, your hard work, Rick, and the environmental circle of individuals you surrounded yourself with? Or like, just how did you do it? It was a, it was a combination in my perspective of three things. Okay. Uh, the first one being I'm obsessive. I have yes. an obsessive personality. So I was so dedicated to doing it always. That gave me the ability to put in the time that was needed to get good at it. That was one. Mm -hmm. uh, two, I had friends that were better than me. I was the worst one in my group. So being able to see people around me do things, it made it seem like it was possible because they could do it. And so it gave me the mindset of, ah, I could do it because they could do it. And then I think the third one, I'm super competitive. I'm so competitive. Okay. And so I, I, it drives me crazy when I can't do things. It really, really irritates me. So you mix the obsessive personality, seeing people do it that are better than you and, you know, not being able to do something that, that pisses you off. Those three things together, good combination to get good at skateboarding. Yeah. What's that competitiveness then? Is it because like, what's that drive? Like, is it because you don't like losing or do you find that it's more so internal and it's just that? You know, you have that, you, like you said, you have that mindset of, you know, you can do it, but it's just not happening at the moment. No, I hate losing. I hate losing. <laughs> I've always hated it. I do not like it. <laughs> that is definitely my driving factor. And what's crazy, my daughter is the same way. My daughter okay. hates to lose. The, the second she figured out, like at whatever, four or five years old, that you could win something or lose something. Yeah. Loses it every time she loses. That's saying, I don't know, man. I don't know where it came from, but I do not like to lose. I personally like that. I really appreciate that. Do you have your daughter or daughters enrolled in like any team sports or anything like that by any chance? Yeah. She, my, my oldest daughter is yeah. in soccer. We just signed her up for basketball. Okay. And then she's now taking, I mean, this isn't a team sport, but she, she's in a, a skate camp this summer. Yeah. Now. Okay. 
So do you find, like, when you and your wife go to the games, like, do you find yourself, like, in so worked up or so into the game itself, too? Like, that, that competitive drive in nature also kicks in? No. That's what's <laughs> so weird. No. I no? am not, like, no, I'm not, like, the sports dad. Okay. I am not the dude who's fired up and I, I don't know why. I'm more mellow. Okay. Um, <laughs> and, and with her, I think, I, I think what it is is like when I grew up, my dad was never like that for me. My, na- my dad never like pushed me to do things. Yeah. But when I would get into, get into them, he would always like support me in it. Right. Mm-hmm. And so like, I think the kind of how I'm attacking this with her is I let her decide what she wants to do. Yeah. I let her find the things. And when she goes, dad, why can't I do this? Or dad, they're better than me. Any of those, I look at that as my opening to go, well, if you want to be as good as them, all it takes is you working harder than them, right? So if I can get her to view you getting better as just a time equation, Mm -hmm. more time put in means you get better, then that's my time to work with her and go, well, do you want to start practicing? Let's do it together. If you want to start getting on this, let's do it together. But I'm trying to let her come to that conclusion first before I start throwing this, you know, <laughs> obsession or obsessive kind of energy on it. Oh, that's awesome, man. I really respect that, giving her the independence. Yeah. So then going back into, let's say, your skateboarding days, and did you have individuals that you looked up to as a skateboarder while growing up? Yeah. It Well, at that time, it was more of like the squad. It was just okay. like... You know, we were just trying to like be the best. Yeah. Um, I did have favorite skaters when I was a kid, even with them. Like Eric Costin was one of my favorite skaters growing up. Um, but when I got into skateboarding, Jamie Thomas actually became a really big influence of mine. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. And it was like, yeah, he was unreal. Like he was so gnarly, but I saw a video of him filming somebody. Mm -hmm. Like it was like a B roll shot or, or a second angle. And I saw him filming like Adrian Lopez. Yeah, And I thought it was so cool that a pro skateboarder was also filming him. And then I found out that he owned the companies, he owned Zero, and then he later gone and create Fall, and he owned all these things. And that was like really impactful in my life. I, I really was drawn towards this idea of a skater being more than just a skater. Uh, and I think that had a really big impact on, on what I ended up doing through my skate career. Uh, I see. That's pretty cool. Because normally, I don't know, a lot of my guests, I ask them that, and I, we don't really hear that angle, right? And that, yeah. it, it sounds to me like it was just a product of leading by example, and you're just taking that. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Next question I have, then, would be, are there any favorite up-and-coming skateboarders that is generating enough noise for you to catch your attention, I guess? like, you know, or Or do you not so much follow closely to the next generation of skaters? Like, for example, like, you know, this is a person named Andy Anderson. Like, have you heard of him? Like, does he capture your attention? Um, in, I'm in not as in, yeah, I'm not as involved. I'll start okay. there. So, like, I used to know, like, every single kid coming up before they even came up. Yeah. Right? Like, I knew the kid in, like, Minneapolis when he had a shop sponsor. Like, I was really in tune. Okay. Now, I, I, I'm not anymore. So, like, you know, like, somebody like Uto, I'm blown away with. Uh, yes. Love Miles Silva. It's, it's, I'm more, uh just a fan, I guess okay. you could say. Yeah. <laughs> then like in the mix, actually knowing what's happening behind the scenes. But I think Utah is like unbelievable. Unbelievable. Yeah. Kind of transitioning, I guess. Um, I want to know your parents' perspectives or what you thought or what you knew about your parents' perspectives. So I guess what were your parents' perspectives with you skateboarding and your skateboarding career as I believe, you know, like, you know, early on, like if, if you're skateboarding, it's not a career that aligns with the social norms, right? With the social scripts of, you know, going to school and then going to university, getting a degree and becoming a professional to lock in that nine to five job that will give you that security, right? Like, what did your parents think about that? Did you have any struggles against that? Or? Yeah. Yeah, that's a good question. They were they were okay with it when it was just a hobby. Yeah. When I was doing it in high school, they were okay with it. When I told them I wasn't going to college, they kind of panicked. And, <laughs> and that was the reason. It's like, you know, skateboarding was so small. Mm-hmm. You know, the length of time that you could be a pro skateboarder was not very long back then. The amount of money you could make was nothing. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, they were concerned. My mom was really concerned about it. But we kind of got to a point where we agreed that, like, I could just do this for a little bit. And there was nothing that ever stopped me from going back to school. Yes. And so she found a little bit of comfort there. Uh, and then what was supposed to be temporary ended up being 15 years of me being a pro skateboarder. It just, 
kept going, the industry kept growing, and then mm-hmm. opportunity kind of started presenting itself that wasn't there, you know, in the first few years yeah. that I was able to kind of jump at. And then it ended up turning into something else, which was cool. But no, they were scared. Well, well right now, I assume they're, they're proud parents right now. Right? They're just, stoked. Yeah, like, they're so yeah, stoked. Yeah. You're giving them beautiful grandchildren. Like, Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they're stoked now. But back then, they were worried. Yeah, that, that's good to hear. Now, do you find yourself kind of taking on that similar role? Or do you think you take on that similar role for your daughters? And I, I think you also, like, you were you recently had a newborn as well. Like, a son, yeah. Fact, right? Yeah, we just had a newborn, which reminds me, we got to change that bio up. Um, yeah, we had a, uh, our first son uh, about yeah. 15 months ago. Congratulations, by the way. Thank you. Thank <laughs> but yeah, do you, do you see yourself like taking on that role again, even though like you've lived through it? Well, taking on the role in the sense of like wanting what's best for our kids. Uh, yeah, wanting what's best for the kids and, you know, maybe trying to not force them, but maybe push them towards, you know, like that post-secondary role for example one of your clips on youtube that you have on under a comedy like you talk about the difference from like actually going to school and getting an education right actually learning something right so like yeah do you find that deep down inside you kind of take on the role of your parents wanting them to maybe go to post-secondary and kind of taking away that education aspect or emphasis a little bit more just because it was kind of ingrained in you right from your parents yeah no it's i took a different stance than my parents did at that point yeah um like i do not want my kids going to college like okay i'm i'm actually going to try everything i can to get them to not go yeah uh unless there's a big change in the school system from now and you know, I've got about 12 years, so I have to worry about this. Mm-hmm. Then that's a different conversation. But I'm, dude, I'm really concerned about the school system. I think people take more risk going to college than not, unless you're going for something that, you know, you want to be a lawyer, you want to be a doctor, then fine. And if my daughters look at me and go, you know, this is what I want to do. Different story. Mm-hmm. But I'm hoping to equip them with more tools then they're going to get going to college or even, you know, time after that. Yeah. So then they can apply in the actual real world that this school isn't offering, mm-hmm. you know? And so would... that's the only thing that I'm going to put, like, <laughs> I, I'll, I'll probably put a big influence there. Like, you know, as far as what, what path they want to pick, that's all them. They tell me they're going to college. They're going to pay for every single penny of it. I'm going to make it tough for them. <laughs> kudos to you and wife's okay with that too or has the same perspective i presume well what's funny is my wife went to college my wife and i took two different paths to get here my wife went to business school mm-hmm. and then after business school went and got her master's in design started her engineer design business so on and so forth so she came from the educational system and now you know both of us took two different paths to get here one uneducated but real experience her wow. educated then having to get the real experience yeah. and Honestly, dude, she learned everything from starting her business, truthfully. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and now it's like, you know, my kids have two parents who have built things. So it's like, you know, my kids want to learn about marketing. I'll be able to teach them that. They want to learn about sales. I'll be able to teach them that. They want to learn about money, investing, building a team. All of that we can teach them, mm-hmm. you know, so I'd rather be able to teach them through two people who have already done it yes. as opposed to a teacher that's teaching them out of a book that has not done it. 100%. It's kind of like that saying, like, you you don't want to pick a financial advisor that's like, not good with money, right? <laughs> no, I, I, want to, I want to pick a financial advisor who's financially free. Yeah, 100%. Right? I want to yeah. pick a, a financial advisor who built a wealth management business from the ground. Yeah. And now does not have to work, but has the choice to work. That, that's who I want to be around. People that have done it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So my stance on school is not pretty. I agree with you, though. It can change. I hope mm-hmm. it does change. Mm-hmm. But for the amount of money that it costs to go to school, what the kids actually learn from school, I don't think it's even close to worth it. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I personally, myself, I 100% agree with it. Uh, I, I went through university. I didn't, go, I didn't go get my master's. I just got my designation. But I found that for me personally, I can't speak for anybody else, but like it was a game where it shouldn't be a game. That was not the intent. But I got to the point where, you know, all these directions that they were pointing, it it was a game to me. It's like, it's not about learning how to, it's just about passing for myself. Yeah, that's right. It's totally yeah. right. So I guess going back, yeah, again, you're a father to two wonderful daughters and a recently born son. 
And I believe in your early life, your dad introduced you to Randy for financial advice, right? That's right. Because of the uncertainty of your career. Now, do you see yourself taking on this role to your children? Or do you think because as a dad, you might want someone not the same relationship to take on this role? Yeah, that's a good, great question. What we're focusing on right now is building the foundation, mm-hmm. right? Okay. Like the things you learn as a kid based on what you see your parents doing make a huge impact when you get older, even when somebody comes in to teach you about the actual skills, right? Yes. Like if you saw parents with a good example of just the behavioral side or the relationship with money, you're not going to have to work through as much crap as opposed to somebody who looked at two parents who had a terrible relationship with money, right? right. You got to build through a bunch of scar tissue there. So what we're kind of focusing on is one, all of my kids will have an abundance mentality when it comes to money. All of them will believe that there is a lot of money out there and that it's possible for them to go get, right? Yes. That's the beginning. Second, they need to understand how to be earners. They have Mm -hmm. to understand that they have to go out and do to then produce, so uh-huh. that will be there. We'll start, they're a little bit young, but my older is trying to get into this time where we're going to start implementing this, but we'll do like a, a fake 401k match. Okay. You yeah. Know, you put money in the savings account and we will match it if you keep it in here for a certain amount of time. I wanted to teach them delayed gratification, nice. right? So really, really going to work heavy on the behavioral side now. Yes. And then when she gets older, you know, if I do have that dynamic, which I might, where she doesn't want to listen to dad. She wants to listen to somebody else. Well, then she'll have all of the mechanics already built to where then she just has to learn the to-dos and then she'll be in a position to then go and do them. Okay. So as a parent then, obviously we as adults, we know the terminology, we know the definition of an abundance mindset, but how do you, you and your wife explain or explain that term to your children in their lingo, you know? Yeah, totally. There's two things at play here. And this is really important for parents. You can tell them all you want. They don't listen. They only see. So you just have to remember that everything you are saying, you have to live out as well, right? Mm. On the abundance mentality, the biggest example right now is when they say, can we have something? Can we go buy this? Can we go do this trip? Right? Yes. And we've started for the last three years when we're talking about how to create earners. Yes. When they want something, there has to be a task that they go and do to earn the money to then go and buy it. Right? Where parents go wrong when they start talking about scarcity mindset is when their kids ask to do something and they say, we can't afford that. Um, We can't afford that. We don't have money for that. Right? A kid hears that and goes, we don't have enough to do. Instead, we go, well, how do we go buy that? You know, my daughter wanted a doll that was $100. Dad, I want to buy this. How much is $100? Where are we going to get the money? How do we go out and earn this money? Well, can I wash your car? Yes, go wash the car. Well, can we go see if any of the neighbors need their dog walk? Yes, let's go do that. So it's I want them to start thinking, I need that. How do I go and do it? You know, so there's never anything that stops them from going to do it. Yeah. And then even when my wife, even when my wife talks to me, and this is a big one, they listen, right? If my wife goes, Hey, I want to, I want to go buy this. I want to go do this. I will never say to her, can't do it. We don't have the money for it. Never. Mm -hmm. It's always, okay, let's talk about that. What's our plan to get there? What is our either budgeting going to look like? We don't have enough money to budget for it. How do we go out and earn? I want the kids to hear that conversation. Ah, okay. So it's interesting. So you're there. The kids are actually listening in on like those financial conversations within the family then. Cause, uh, I notice or personally, it's like a big taboo in a lot of families to even talk about finances. Yeah. So my, just to kind of give more context, my wife and I have a budget meeting every other week. Oh, okay. Right? Yeah. <laughs> so every two weeks, seven o'clock on a Thursday, we have a budget meeting and we usually do it after dinner. Okay. And so if my kids, like I won't call my kids in, kids, come listen to this. But usually the kids are playing around and we're sitting on the dinner table with the computer talking about it, right? Yeah, yeah. And a lot of times they listen in. And the other thing too that's important that I think like just having the kids see that you schedule mm-hmm. the time out and that both of you are doing it together. Something that's, that, that's really common with money is mm-hmm. a lot of times the husband or the wife are in charge of finance and the other is not. Yeah. Right. Because usually somebody's better with money than and the others not is not. But it is a, a team sport here. Both people should be very aware of 
what their position is now, what their short-term goals are, what their long-term goals are. And there should be always this constant communication that you guys are headed on the right path. Even when you're doing something like investing, Mm -hmm. both people should understand the risk that you're taking when you're putting dollars into something, what the reward is, and both feel very comfortable that you're, you're going to make that decision according to your goals. Yeah. Right. So I, I want the kids to see that too. And that's something that my parents like did really well. Okay. My dad didn't teach me all of the, all of what would you call it? My dad didn't equip me with, to be financially literate. Mm-hmm. It, it, he just didn't. But what my dad did do was gave me a great example of how to manage money. Just watching them. Yeah. Right. My mom and dad always talked about money. When something happened, like my dad got a ticket or something broke, my dad never let his anger. I never saw emotion with him. It was just, okay, how do we do this? Boom, boom, boom. And so that was kind of the foundation that once I plugged in with a Randy, he didn't have to build, he didn't have to work through any scar tissue. It was just boom, 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 boom. Okay, 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 okay. You know? Wow. So what is one of the most impactful things Randy has told you that stuck with you to this very day? Oh. How to create wealth. How to create wealth. <laughs> yeah. I, I asked him that a long time ago. How, how do people become wealthy? Yeah. He looked at me and went leverage. Oh, leverage. Leverage. I'm like, okay, like, well, well, like leverage, like money, like leverage. He goes, yes, but there's more to it. Okay. Learning how to leverage time, money, and people. Mm-hmm. And I remember I was like, okay, I get the money part. Uh, time, I, I, I didn't really understand people. I really don't understand what the heck does he mean by leveraging people, right? And he started walking me through this idea of one, learning about financial leverage, you know, using somebody else's money to increase your purchasing power and increase your return. Okay, cool, right? Uh, leveraging time, paying for people to do a task to free you up to go do another task, right? Yeah. And then leveraging people. And this is the one that actually had the biggest impact on me because when he first said it, I actually took it as a negative, like leveraging people. That, that feels wrong. Yeah. And he goes, no, 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 no. What I mean by that is bringing talented people in so that you don't have to build something by yourself, right? When you go out to do something, you know what you're good at. You know what you're bad at. I want you to think of the vision. And then I want you to think of all the people you need to bring around you to create that vision. So it's us going there, not you. And that one, I really, really hung on to. And when I started getting into starting my first business, it was who is great at this? Who is great at that? Who is great at that? And that was me leveraging other people's expertise so that I could drive forward with them, not just by myself. Mm. I love how you explained that because I myself too, when I first heard leveraging people, I thought of the term using, but it took, it took a while to realize, Hey, no, we're just, it's everybody contributing together to a common goal and vision. Like you said, that is so powerful. Yeah, that's um, right. I guess going back to your children, then when it comes to teaching financial literacy to them, is there like, whether it's budgeting value of dollar, you mentioned that they sit in, in the conversations between your, you and your wife. Is there also one technique that you found really impactful? The reason why I, I wanted to ask this question is because uh, there's a TikTok, it might be an Instagram reel that you had where, you know, your daughter washed your card, you gave her the, tw- I can't remember if it's a 20, but you gave her money, but she's like, I don't want it. Put it, you know, put it in my safe, like that account, right? So I was like, almost the majority of kids would be like, yes, I'm going to take that and buy ice cream and buy this and that and that. This was eye opening for myself. So is there one technique that you found very useful for parenting in, in that aspect? The hard part is the kids are different, right? Like I have one kid who loses, she's good at saving. Yeah. I have another kid who just wants to spend it all. Oh, right? okay. So you have to actually attack the behavior different based okay. on what the challenge is, yes. right? So typically like, you know, for my oldest, it's easier for her to save her money, build it up so that she gets to do something with it. Mm-hmm. So it's a different approach I take than with my younger one. My younger one's like, I got money. I want to spend it. Right. So what I basically am trying to do with her and she's younger. So you got to remember like kids, they can only understand a certain amount when they're young, Mm -hmm. but I'm trying to work on the behavioral side of her feeling like she needs to experience it now. Okay. And see that by delaying the moment right now, you're pushing it to a greater moment in the future. 
right? So like, for example, she'll buy, let's call it a $25 doll, yeah. right? And my older daughter will save up and she'll buy the $100 doll. And my youngest daughter will go, dad, hers is better than mine. Hers gets to do all these things, right? <laughs> yeah. Then that's the moment. All right, babe, look, the reason why she was in the position to get the nicer doll is because she actually waited. So let's look at waiting, mm-hmm. building up and getting this nicer doll, right? And just the hard part is getting them to experience the, the next, the, the next, uh, whatever it is, purchase or feeling to come down the road. Wow. So. With that scenario, you could also like spice it up by adding a little, or, you know, it could be competitive too. Like, so is your second daughter, is she, does she also have that competitive nature that you find or is she, no? She is different, <laughs> man. No, she's not competitive. Like yeah. my oldest, she is super coordinated. She's oh, wow. like brilliant. Like it is so easier, easy for her to do things. Yeah. It's not competitive, which is very different than me. So, you know, the, the games won't work with her, man. Like nope. it, it's, <laughs> it's a whole different strategy with her. It really yeah. is. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The joys of parenting. Well, I, I guess I want to transition a little bit more now to the business side of things. I, I, I again, I want to thank you for sharing your parenting tips and like your experience, especially with the children, because I think that is key. And I think there's a reason why the very few out there or very few families are able to retain the wealth and pass it down and create generational wealth. I kind of want to talk about specifically your business, specifically Commune Capital. You know, you're a skateboarder, and then you, I think, if I remember correctly, you started St. Archer first, and then that after that came Commune Capital. So how do you go from professional skateboarding to brewery, or being in the alcohol industry, and then being an investment firm? Being Yeah. Like, that's, yeah. that's a big shift, right? Like <laughs> It's all over the place. Yeah, it's all over the place. <laughs> <laughs> What I found is yeah. all business is the same, but industries maybe have different rules they go by. Maybe there's different terms, mm-hmm. but at the end of the day, it's all the same, okay. right? You have to sell a product or a service to a consumer. How do you create the demand? Mm-hmm. How do you build brand awareness? How do you bring on a team to help you fulfill the demand? All of that is the same. So, what does take time, though, is having to learn the intricacies of the certain industry you're going into, right? Mm-hmm. It just so happened that with beer, believe it or not, beer was very similar to skating. There was this kind of core element yeah. to skating where, like, core did not like mainstream. Okay. Like, we were like, let's keep skating 100% pure. We don't want all these wannabes or posers or whatever wearing our stuff. It's all about us. Yes. But the mainstream is what did numbers. That's what did volume. So you're always trying to basically hold the heart of the core mm-hmm. while being able to sell to the mainstream because that's where you are still perceived as cool and you're making enough money to actually have a business, right? Beer was very similar, man. There was a core component to beer that were these diehard home brewers. Yes. That turned into doing a brewery out of like a self storage unit and then into their first building, et cetera. So all of that was at play, which actually was very comfortable for us because our industry was similar. Commune was different. Commune is the most different thing I've ever done for kind of two reasons. One, I had to educate myself on the financial world because there were a lot of terms that I didn't know, even though I understand, understood how business works. For example, like, Multifamily apartments. Multifamily apartments operate like a small business, but you have different components of how the revenue comes in. You have expenses, of course. You have your net operating income, but what values the property is different than how you value a business. So I had to learn just the different components of that. I had to learn about cap rates. I had to learn about just little things I didn't know prior. Once I understood that, then it got kind of switched more into the business side of it. How do we create a business that is different than our, than our competitors? How do we get people to know who we are? How do we maximize a great experience for the people that want to work with us? All of that stuff, it's all the same. Okay. Okay. Going yeah. back to what we were talking about with leverage, right? When I started the company, yeah. did my business plan, did what I wanted to create, then went out and brought the best people in to help me build out this vision. 
So I didn't have to be the master of storage units and have 30 years experience. I didn't need that because I brought somebody in who did have 30 years of development experience in storage. I brought somebody in who was experienced in multifamily for the last however long. So it, it, it makes it so the team can go accomplish, not just myself. Does that make can, sense? That does make sense. Definitely makes sense for myself. Can you tell us or tell our listeners a little bit about Commune Capital, especially its mission and its vision? Yeah. The mission is kind of how we use social media. And okay. it is to empower everyone who follows us so that they become financially literate. Yes. So that they can then take the steps and path towards becoming financially free. Mm, the okay. mechanic of the business is we allow people to invest in the deals that we personally invest in. Yes. So if you're already at the point of investing, you're a credit investor, you want to get into multifamily storage, lending, et cetera, you can look and participate in what we do. If you're not there yet, we have a whole kind of pathway to educate you, to get you on that path so that you can end up getting to the position of wanting to invest with us. Or you can go do it on your own. Either way, trying to get people to become financially free. Okay. But in the US, the definition of an accredited investor is, I think, a net worth of over, I think, 100000 And you got to have a certain income threshold that you have to make. Is that correct? Yeah. Out here, the you have to qualify one of three ways. Okay. If you qualify by income, yes. you need to make $200,000 a year as a single person for two years. Mm-hmm. If you're married, you have a partner, you have to make 300000 for two mm-hmm. years. Or you can have a net worth over a million dollars, excluding your primary residence. Okay. Those are kind of the qualifications. And then oh. now they've, they've extended it where if you're in the financial industry, you have a pathway to become an accredited investor without those qualifications. And for our listeners, I believe the reason why they have this classification, and correct me if I'm wrong, Mikey, from my understanding, the reason for this classification back then was to protect the investors to ensure that they had the financial literacy, the knowledge, and you know the net worth to say, hey, if you're able to manage or accumulate this amount of wealth, you should be able to know how to invest where you want to invest versus an individual that may not have that amount, may not have the same amount of literacy, right? That's the, uh, I, I would believe that's why. That's the idea behind it. Yeah. <laughs> if you make a certain amount, you should be more financially literate. It doesn't work that way, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's the requirement they put on. And, you know, for what we do, especially being somebody who has like a big social media presence yes. uh, and somebody who understands marketing, they are very concerned about people like me, right? They don't want people to create content that is used to trigger an emotional response, which then mm-hmm. gets people to invest in something that they don't understand the risk they're taking. Yes. So they're trying to protect people in that regard. But the challenge to it is in the same regard, it limits people from participating. So it's like, I wish there was a test they did to find out if you are financially literate. Because I know people that make a million bucks a year, they don't have a clue how money works. Not at all. And I have other friends that make 80 grand a year, super literate, totally understand what they're doing. So it's like, that's just what we're facing with the SEC. Mm, yeah, that makes sense. So how does Commune Capital differ from its competitors? Like, I think, would, would it be fair to say that Commune Capital is, or some of the funds that it offers would be considered a real estate investment trust, a REIT? Uh, this is a good question. Two of our portfolios are private REITs. Private okay. REITs. okay. Uh, one of them is not a REIT. A REIT is just a different type of structure of a fund. Mm-hmm. It allows you to take qualified dollars, IRA dollars, without triggering what's called a UBTI or double taxation, kind of in the weeds. But what really separates us from, in my perspective, our competition is, one, there's not a lot of people that repurpose. There's not a lot of people that are going after big box retail with the purpose of turning it into storage. Yes. So even just a function of what we are doing is niche. The malls, not a lot of people are turning malls into apartments. Most people out there are trying to figure out how to kind of reimagine the mall experience where that's not us. It's dead mall going to apartment buildings. Uh, (laughs) The other thing too is like most real estate groups, they're behind the times, let's say, when it comes to social media, when it comes to creating a brand, when it comes to creating experience, they don't understand that world. So kind of one thing we do for our investors 
is offer more of an experience than just the return alone. So most of our competitors, it's you invest with me, I pay you, you know, either a preferred return or this cash dividend plus this appreciation. And that is the experience for us. Dude, we send out all of our correspondence with our investors this video format. We do a lot, spend a lot of time on the education process so that our investors are becoming wiser and yes. learning along with making money. We do meetups or kind of investor events similar yeah. to like what you would call like a, like a networking group. Mm-hmm. So they get to come out, like we're actually preparing our next one, which is going to be at one of our storage units. We have a big expansion happening. Okay. So we'll invite out a bunch of our investors. You know, it'll be catered. There'll be drinks, music. We'll kind of walk the property, show them what we do, give them an opportunity to meet other investors. And then to, the other thing, dude, we spend a lot of time teaching people about money on social media. Yes. Not a lot of real estate companies doing that. It's out of curiosity because a lot of my listeners, are, my listeners' base isn't just in the U.S., right? So let's say if someone's, let's say, in the U.K. and they find that, hey, if I want to invest in commune capital, like, do you happen to know if there are any barriers of entry for like a non-citizen to, you know, invest with commune or even be associated with it if they're not an accredited investor? You have to, well, the first one you have to be accredited because okay. we have to hold the regulation that we have in America in that okay. regard. Yes. Uh, if they are accredited, there's some things you have to do from a tax standpoint, but you can do it. Okay. The accreditation or, or being an accredited investor is really the, the big, let's call it hurdle. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's good to know then. And you also mentioned earlier, if you're not an accredited investor, where would someone that's not an accredited investor go? Would it be the Commune Capital's website or where would they go to learn or go through that process? Yeah. So basically you can find us on any platform. Okay. LinkedIn, Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, etc. YouTube is where we put out all of our long form content. Okay. Where we actually spend time breaking down, let's call it, uh, what was the last one we did? We did one on, on generating wealth, the whole concept yeah. of leverage. Mm-hmm. We have one right now coming out all about the real estate market right now and why we're in the position we're in with demand, how it differs from 2008, etc. All mm-hmm. of that is on YouTube and mm-hmm. then all of our other platforms are meant to put pieces of the YouTube to drive you towards our YouTube channel. Just because ah. we get 15 minutes with you versus 30 seconds, 15 minutes is going to have more depth to it. Oh, definitely. And for our listeners, just so you know, I'll be posting all of Mikey Taylor's links in the episode description below. So be sure to check those out. Now, if we look in the future, where do, where do you see Commune Capital in five years? Like, do you have, what are some goals, benchmarks? Uh, do you see potential entry to other investment markets, investors? In my opinion, I believe you guys are already in the education industry. Do you see that growing as well? Like Our short-term goals, five years, we want to be managing a billion dollars of real okay. estate. We want to have an offering for non-accredited investors, yes. so Reg A+. Of course, we want to build out the financial education component. Yes. And we're in the talks of offering another opportunity. So right now, we're multifamily, storage, lending. Uh, we're talking about a, a potential fourth portfolio. Oh, uh, but it, it's going to be a little that, that we're three years out on that one. I think the big ones for us are manage a billion non-accredited uh, investor portfolio. Those are those are the ones we want to capture. Like, love it. And reflecting upon your life now, I guess what is one of the biggest accomplishments or milestones that you are most proud of? Would it be maybe potentially an open to end process of how St. Archer panned out, or do you think it's Commune Capital? Like, what is something that what do you believe is something that's most memorable to you in terms of accomplishments or milestones? Oh, yeah, that's a good question. I think I'm in the thick of it right now. I'm still <laughs> building that one out only because transitioning out of being a pro skateboarder, mm-hmm. it's the hardest thing I've ever done by far. Yeah. Nothing else has come close to this from a business standpoint. Being a parent, that's the hardest, but just on <laughs> kind of the, the career aspect of it. Yeah, that's been the hardest. I'm really close in my perspective to to now been able to look back and go, there it is, uh, <laughs> and that's going to be the biggest one. Nice. Okay, we're about to wrap up the podcast here. I have three more questions I ask every one of my guests, and so I guess I'll start off with the first one. Is there one book or resource you would recommend to our listeners that's most impactful to you and your development and becoming who you are today? Does it have to be specific to financial literacy? Maybe it could be a parenting book or whatever book that you found that made the most impact to you. 
the book that made the biggest impact on me was the Bible. Oh, the Bible. Okay. Yeah. As far as who I am and, and the life I live, that's number one. Number two, probably Rich Dad Poor Dad. Ooh, Robert Kiyosaki. Yeah, that that's a that's a gateway drug type of book. That that gets you to go, wait, what? And puts you on a deep dive to learn more. I've learned more about money from the Bible than anything else. The majority of the Bible talks about money, actually. Yeah. Money management, everything we talk about when it comes or pertains to managing money, it's all biblical. Okay. So if you don't mind me asking, within the Bible, because there's the Old Testament, there's New Testament, there's also different chapters, right? Like, you know, Genesis, you know, Revelations and so on and so on. Which chapter or which book would you say is most memorable to you within the Bible? Or is that is that a hard one too? Like I know many I talk to, Psalms is a big one. Uh, I would say Psalms is like, you, you want to talk about wisdom? Yeah. Uh, you go there. Yeah, all of them have have a different, I, I don't know if there's one over the other, truthfully. I love Revelations, that's what's to come. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a tough one, man. Oh, understandable. But I would say, you know, I look, love First John, love Acts. There's, there's, there's chapters that, or books I, I just enjoy, but they all work so brilliantly together. Mm-hmm. And the beginning, you know, prophesies towards the end. And it's, it's so insane how it's all intertwined that it's hard to say which one. That's understandable. And moving on to the next question. What do you believe it takes to be first generation to you? Now, I define the term first generation as someone that's paved their own definition and path of success on their own terms, no matter the negativity, the hardships, the obstacles they've had to overcome, they've pushed through and persevered through. And I personally, metaphorically again, I believe that many individuals walk similar journeys in in our world, but no one walks the exact same path. So if I was to ask you, what do you think it takes to be first generation? Like, what would that be for you? Or what comes to your mind? Resilience comes to my mind. Resilience? Yeah, because to your point, yes, we all walk a different path. Yeah. What we all do have consistently who have achieved that Mm -hmm. is we weren't willing to stop. It's the only difference. One, you, you, you hit hard times. And you give in and say, okay, this is as far as I can go. Yeah. The other isn't willing to stop until it happens. Yeah. I think it's driving factor. Love it. And last question I have is, where can we find you on social media, Mikey? Where can we find more details about Mikey Taylor and your work online? I'll, I'll come on all of them. You can yeah. just search Mikey Taylor. Pick your favorite platform. I'll be there. Uh, <laughs> my favorite right now is TikTok. If you're on TikTok, that is where the most action's coming from me. But I'm on them all. If you don't mind me asking, why TikTok? Same reason I liked Instagram in 2011. As current as it can be for what creators are trying to accomplish, right? Okay. One, their whole entire goal is keeping people engaged and watching content, mm-hmm. right? So. All that means is you put out good content, people are going to see it. Yeah. But that's really good, especially when you're like me. I want people to learn more about money. I want people to learn more about financial freedom, about money management, right? So when more people see it, that that's good. That's that's me reaching my purpose. TikTok is built for that. It, it, It is so powerful. Then that's where everybody is, dude. Everyone is on TikTok right now. Instagram, Facebook, they are scrambling. Because TikTok is bringing so many people in and retaining so many people. Mm-hmm. Their algorithm is gnarly. It's, it, they did such a good job on it. Thank you for sharing, Mikey. Mikey, thank you so much for coming on to this show. And it's an honor and pleasure to have you on. Thank you for sharing your wisdom. I appreciate it, Big Dog. Thanks for having me. Hope you enjoyed the show. You can follow us on Instagram and subscribe to us on YouTube at First Generation Podcast. For any questions, comments, and inquiries, please reach out to Aaron at firstgenerationspodcast.com. That is A-A-R-O-N at firstgenerationspodcast.com. Stay tuned for the next episode.